Good morning. It's great to be with you guys today. Hey, I want to just echo what Ian said during the welcome and announcements today. Uh, if you are new to the church, if you have questions, the event that we're doing this afternoon is very casual. I don't want you to feel any pressure, especially if maybe today's your first Sunday and you're thinking, is this too soon to come and get information about this church I don't even know anything about? Uh, we don't think so. We do these about every six to eight weeks, and so uh, this is the, the last one for a little while, for a couple of months. You don't need to have RSVP'd beforehand. We just want to make sure you know you're welcome. You're totally welcome. Any questions that you have, uh, it's one of the rare opportunities we as elders actually get to uh, interact in deep theological issues. So it's kind of a fun uh, test for us every six or eight weeks on whether or not we're on our game still. So come and test us. You know, think you bring your hardest question, even if it's nothing that you care about. You can, get, you can kind of play a game with us a little bit. Uh, today's going to be week two. This is our second week in the book of Exodus. Uh, you could argue it's kind of the first week actually in the book of Exodus because last week we just looked at the very first word of the book of Exodus. Understanding that Exodus is itself an extension. It's the second chapter in a much larger story that God is telling in the Old Testament and really in the whole Bible, really throughout all of creation. So um, I want to mention to you this, if you don't have one of these, um, this is an Exodus scripture journal. So it is a collection of the whole book of Exodus in the ESV translation, which is what I preach from. And then every other page is either blank or has uh, lines for you to take notes. And so we have these at both of the entrances to this room. There are some in the lobby this morning. There's also some here on this black table. This is a free gift to you. We'd love for you to have this. We are going to be in the book of Exodus for the majority of 2021. And uh, our hope is across the years as we preach book by book that you'll build up a library of God's word that'll have notes that you've taken yourself uh, milestones, things that God has put on your heart. So I'd encourage you to grab one. Uh, you can even awkwardly get up now while I'm talking and grab one if you don't have one today. Uh, that is up to you. So last week, we worked our way through the first 22 chapters of the Bible, and we started that not in Genesis chapter 1, but actually in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we wanted to start where all Christians should start, and that's with Jesus. So the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, this will be the third week in a row that we've read this passage, but I think it's worth doing. We're going to have it for you on the screen. He says this. He says, in him we have redemption. Who is he? He is Jesus. In Jesus we have redemption, and this comes about through his blood. This is the forgiveness of our trespasses, and it happens according to the riches of God's grace, which he has lavished upon us. He did this in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. That's really important. When we read the Old Testament, there are going to be parts of what we read that will feel like they are a mystery to us. Jesus arrives and he solves those problems for us. He helps us understand what God is doing and why. That's why I'm bringing this back up to you again today. This may feel redundant, but I think it's important that we remember the only way we're going to navigate the stories of the Old Testament successfully according to God's plan, is by seeing and understanding Jesus. So he says, this happened according, excuse me, making known the mystery of his will according to God's purpose, which he set forth in Jesus. So it's not just implied. Paul's explicit. This is, this is what Christ is here to do. And this was a plan for the fullness of time, a plan to unite all things in him, in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. And so what that communicates to me is that God has always only had one plan. And that plan is to unite everything Back in Jesus, if you think about creation at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, there is one God, three persons. He works within himself to create all things, and all of those things find their purpose, their meaning, their origin, their destination in him, in God. They are for him. They're made by him. But then sin happens, and that shatters. And so all Paul's explaining here is that from the moment that sin entered the world, God's plan has been to take everything back to where it started and fix it all. 
which is really good news because you live on the same planet I do and your life is ravaged by the effects of rebellion and sin just like mine is. And the hope that we have in every circumstance that we face is that God is still working. Part of the reason why we felt that it was appropriate to begin a book like the book of Exodus is the theme of this book will be that God is still working. You heard the narrator of our video say three different times, God sees and God knows. That's a quote from a little bit later on in the book of Exodus, but that's the the big idea here, is that God has not abandoned his people, he hasn't looked away, he isn't distracted, he's not taking a nap, and he hasn't given up. He's still working. That's what Paul's trying to communicate to you and I. And so what we said last week was, if that's been God's plan since the very beginning, then when we look at the very beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, we should see the fingerprints of God working us toward Jesus. So there are three covenants that we looked at last week. Just as a quick review for you, if you didn't have a chance to jot these down, you may want to grab these. Uh, God laid out three covenants that happened before we arrive in the book of Exodus. And the first covenant, God says this. It's very broad. This happens in Genesis 3. And he says, I will reconcile all that has been undone by sin. This is the promise that is implied when God hands down the curse to the serpent, when he closes the Garden of Eden. He communicates that there is a descendant of Eve who is coming, and that that descendant will crush the head of the serpent who misled God's people and introduced selfishness into the equation. So that's good, but it's very broad. We fast forward six chapters. God uses water to destroy almost every living creature on the face of the planet, and then he makes a second covenant with a man named Noah. And he tells Noah, he says, I will reconcile. That doesn't change, but I'm going to do it now through redemption instead of destruction. He used destruction with the flood. He hit reset fully. But he says, from now on, the way that I'll make sure all debts are settled is by making things better, not necessarily by giving everybody all the time what they deserve. This is good news for you and me because what we deserve is death and separation from God. So for God to choose to use redemption as the vehicle of his reconciliation instead of destruction is very good news for us. And then the third covenant that we looked at last week happened between God and a man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And God says to Abraham, I will redeem, so that doesn't change, the descendants of you, Abraham, and I'm going to do it in the land of Canaan, and I'm doing this in order to reconcile the world to myself. The irony of that covenant is he's speaking to a man who has no children, who's 100 years old, who thinks he can never have children. So how's God going to use the descendants of a man with no descendants? Well, we dug into that last week, and we sort of finished our fast-forward process through Genesis at the end of chapter 22. My objective today with you is to try to help you understand the rest of the book of Genesis very quickly. And if you can think of Genesis as kind of two parts, this helps me when I think about what God's doing in the Old Testament. Chapters 1 through 22 is sort of God laying out the ingredients. I referenced this last week a little bit, but you may not have been here. The ingredients he's going to use in this recipe of reconciliation. So if reconciliation is where God is headed, he gets the ingredients ready first. And specifically, the ingredients of that grace are these covenants. That's what he'll continue to reference over and over again. You'll hear him when he speaks to Moses from the burning bush in chapter 4 of Exodus. God will identify himself not by what he has done, but by the people that he has covenanted with. He will say, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And immediately, Moses knows who those people are because these covenants are that big of a deal to the Israelites. But beginning in chapter 23, we zoom in on the lives of human beings whom God chooses to use. And that's the second piece. If God's grace and mercy... If his covenants are the ingredients, then the people themselves will be the tools that he will use to mix and prepare those ingredients so that the recipe works according to plan, so that reconciliation can come about. 
Now, when we look at the Bible, <laughs> it sort of feels like God is taking his time, doesn't it? Why does, why does he need to do this? Why does he need to say, there's one covenant, then ten generations of people will go by, then another covenant, then ten more generations of people? Why doesn't God just come to the earth in the form of Jesus in Genesis chapter 4, snap his fingers and fix everything? Well, the short answer, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, is that if he had done that, you and I would not get it. We wouldn't understand Time would not be full yet, to use Paul's language in Ephesians 1. There is a right time for God to come to his people and to fix what is broken, and only he understands fully why, but maybe I can relate this to you in a way that will make a little more sense. Because several people this week asked me, they were like, I don't understand why God does this, why all the covenants, why do we have to wait till Jesus comes? Here's the way that I see it, and I think it will help you. Um, I have a six-year-old foster daughter. And my daughter likes soccer a little bit, just a little bit. At first, when she moved into our house, she's pretty athletic, naturally has good balance. We thought, this is it, man. We're going to get her a soccer ball, a couple of pop-up goals. She'll be doing drills in the backyard. And before we know it, she'll be setting state records. She'll go to college and play soccer. No, she doesn't care that much. If I will go in the yard with her, she will kick the ball at me as hard as she can. And that's about as far as we've gotten into soccer. And if you were to ask her, if you were to go up to her today and say, don't do this because it will embarrass her, please. But if you were to do it and say to her, Hey, do you know about soccer? She's going to look at you. She'll probably roll her eyes. And in, in the condescending way that only a six-year-old can get away with, she's going to say, yes, I know about soccer. But she thinks that soccer is two things. You kick the ball as hard as you can, and then if it goes in the goal, you win. Not your team wins, you win. Everybody else loses if the ball goes in the goal. That's how it works for her, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that those are all the rules of soccer, and early on, in my hopes of introducing her to this game that I really like to watch but never played, I thought, we're going to give her more of the rules. We're going to start talking about things like free kicks and offside and what it means if a game goes to penalties, which if you don't know about soccer, you're like, I don't know, what does that mean? But she, she couldn't grasp any of that. We kept coming back to the idea that you just kick the ball. Like, I would speak to her about it. I would try to give her more of an understanding of the team. We'd put a, a game on the TV with a team that I like in the European League, and she, her eyes would just glass over. She would just look at the wall or walk away, just turn around and walk away and just do something else that she wanted to do. My daughter, as a six-year-old, only has so much capacity to understand the way that the game of soccer works. But the rules of soccer exist outside of her knowledge and understanding. This is how God relates to human beings. The human race has to develop to these different checkpoints such that we become ready for God to give us a little bit more of what he's doing behind the scenes. If God were to approach Abraham 4,000 years before Jesus comes and say to him, hey, Abraham, here's the plan. I'm going to come to earth as a man. I'm going to change all of the, the legalistic rules that you have into rules that have to deal with your heart. And there's going to be a temple that you don't know about yet. And I'm going to claim to be that temple and that it's going to get torn down. And then I'll rebuild it. And there's also a curtain in that temple that's going to tear because the spirit of God will be able to inhabit his people again. And then when I die, I'll go back to heaven to be with my father. And when that happens, the spirit will inhabit you. And I'll send the church to the ends of the earth. And then salvation will spread. And that'll be how we'll fix all of this. Abraham's eyes are going to glass over and he's just going to walk away. He doesn't know. He doesn't have the, the idea, the mental capacity, yes, in some sense, but really the, the lifelong generational spiritual knowledge that this is who God says he is. And so what God is doing in the Old Testament is he is taking his time. He is patient. That's the word the Bible uses so that people collectively, the human race, can develop to the point that they're ready for a little bit more of his plan. Because the plan itself seems so improbable. It's wrapped up so much in symbolism that's supposed to communicate God's character 
and his love to us, that if he were to just dump that on us, we would lose it. Here's the evidence that I have for you. Here's why I know that's true. In almost every book of prophecy, God does that. God actually tells his people what he's going to do, and instead of listening to him and loving him, they run the other direction. They rebel as fast as they can. To the point that when Jesus himself arrives in the Gospels, he does the thing that God has been promising to do for thousands of years, and the way that God's people respond is they nail him to wood until he dies. And yet that's the perfect time. What do we think is going to happen if God comes before that? Is it going to be better? I don't think so. Even God's prophets, almost all of them, end up killed for the things that they say. And they're not even God himself. They're just speaking in God's name. So there's wisdom on behalf of God to be slowly reconciling his people. But here's what I want you to understand. As we read these Old Testament stories, seeing God move slowly should not indicate to you and I that he's not moving at all. And the fact that it can take him hundreds of years, even thousands of years, multiple generations to take what feel like baby steps to us has way more to do with our capacity as human beings than it does with God. God is always working toward his master plan objective, which is to reconcile all things in Jesus. So God slowly does that. He reveals his master plan. We've seen three of those covenants. We will get a fourth covenant about midway in the story of the Exodus where God further expands and communicates to his people not just his general objective, but he begins to give them more and more responsibility in which they can participate. If he's going to work through the descendants of Abraham in the land of Canaan, then he needs to build out the descendants of Abraham, and he needs to move them to Canaan. And along the way, he continues to expand their understanding of what he's doing. So that's the, that's the ingredients, right? God is, is preparing the covenants themselves. He's doing that slowly in a way that we can handle, where we can follow, And beginning in the second half of Genesis, we're going to take a look today at what the tools are that he's going to use. So I promised you last week we would actually get to the book of Exodus. So we're going to get to Genesis by way of Exodus 1. So if you do have a scripture journal or your own copy of God's word, go to Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The first seven verses are a kind of genealogy that won't mean a lot to you at the beginning. But hopefully by the time we're done today, you'll know some of these names and what they mean. The Bible says this in verse 1 of Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. A little confusing. That's the same guy. Israel, Jacob, same person. We'll find out why a little bit later today. Each of these men brought with him his household. There was Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, and Joseph. If you're counting, that's 12. If you know much about the Old Testament, there are eventually 12 tribes in the nation of Israel that carry these same names. These are the men who start those tribes. So there's a little bit of insight for you there. All of the descendants of Jacob were 70, seven zero persons. That's who comes into Egypt initially. And Joseph was already in Egypt. Exodus doesn't tell you why. Genesis does, and we'll get there later today. Verse 6, Joseph died. All of his brothers, all of that generation died. But the people of Israel were fruitful And they increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. When we read these verses, this just feels like a boring introduction to a narrative about people getting set free from slavery. But the implications packed into these names are pretty massive. You and I, should we be familiar with the story of the Genesis account, we're supposed to read these names and think, these guys survived. These are the people that God chose to use. These criminals, these murderers, these people, almost every one of them who would be in prison if they lived in these United States today, this is the family, this crime family syndicate that God moved into Egypt to use. This is his plan. 
Well, let me tell you why that's the way that it is. Let me help you understand how we get there a little bit. I told you last week we stopped our rapid-fire passage through the book of Genesis at the end of chapter 22. This is when Abraham almost kills his son. He gets very close. God stops him. There's the ram. This is sort of a preview or a shadow of Jesus being a sacrifice for innocent people who don't deserve to die, or excuse me, guilty people who do deserve to die, himself being innocent in their place, like the ram who didn't commit any sin against God. Moving into chapter 23, the boy Isaac grows up. He becomes a man. And starting with Isaac's life, Abraham mostly plays by the rules, but starting with Isaac's life, we see the rest of the book of Genesis pretty much taken over by one theme, one idea, and I'm going to ask you to write this down today, the idea that human weakness is the tool with which God works out his covenants. Human weakness. So the covenants of grace are the ingredients. I'm going to keep saying this because I want it to be clear for you. The covenants of grace are the ingredients. Human weakness is the tools. These are the mixing bowls and the knives and the cutting boards and the measuring cups. These are the things with which God is going to measure out those ingredients, mix them together, and ultimately create reconciliation. Human weakness. And nobody in the Bible ever understands this as it's happening. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to them. I would argue maybe John the Baptist is the closest we get to a prophet who actually embraces that weakness is necessary and important, but he doesn't even really live long enough to teach anybody else that. Human weakness is the tool with which God works out his covenants. So two chapters after Abraham almost kills Isaac, Isaac is now a grown man. His mother, Sarah, dies. Abraham buys some land, a cave, to bury her in, so he's respectful about that. But because Sarah has died, Abraham kind of begins to see the light at the end of the tunnel coming for him. He realizes his life is short, and he's worried that if his wife, who was younger than him, is already dead, and he's about to die, his son Isaac may not end up getting married. And if Isaac doesn't get married, Isaac won't have children, and if Isaac doesn't have children, then God's promises won't come true. So as Abraham is approaching his deathbed, he's really invested in making sure that he does whatever he can to help Isaac find a wife. So he sends a servant out back to the land that they moved from because God told him not to marry among the peoples, the Canaanites, because of the wickedness in their hearts. And they find a woman named Rebekah. And Rebekah is brought to Isaac. The two of them are married. They love each other. And plot twist here, she's barren. Remember Sarah, Isaac's mom? She was barren. She wasn't supposed to have any kids. Now this woman, Rebecca, who the Bible describes as very beautiful, very winsome, she herself cannot have children. So she gets mad at Isaac because she thinks maybe it's him, and he says, what, am I God? Am I the one who can control whether we have kids or not? So she prays to the Lord, and the Lord promises her that she will have children, not just a child, but children. The pregnancy itself is really painful. Uh, The babies come out of her womb, and they're like wrapped up in each other. They're wrestling with each other. And the first one, the larger of the two children, his name is Esau. His skin is red. It's so red that red, or Edom, is the Hebrew word in your Bible, becomes his nickname. That's what everybody calls him. Like, kind of big red is what I think of when I read Esau. He's a big guy. He grows up. He's a hunter. He's a really skilled hunter, which is like as close to Fortune 500 CEO as you get in 4000 BC. Like, the camp loves this guy. He's a big deal. He's strong, a physical specimen. The Bible even goes so far as to tell us, and this is Moses writing this down, so it was common knowledge, that his father Isaac liked him, Esau, big red, a whole lot more than the other brother. It was clear from the beginning that there was a favorite. The other brother, his name is Jacob. And if your name is Jacob, I owe you an apology in advance because the Bible says that the name Jacob actually means he cheats. It it, it literally means heel grabber, but you can kind of get the picture here because he comes out hanging on to his big brother's heel. So they name him He Cheats. 
Uh, and that becomes kind of his legacy for the rest of his life. He's defined by that in a way. So really think through your baby names if that's something that you're working on in your family life. If your name is Jacob, uh, it makes you feel any better. The name Philip comes from two Greek words that together mean lover of horses. And I don't. I've never loved a horse, so I can relate to you a little bit there, okay? The name doesn't always dictate. But anyway, in Jacob's case, it seems to be a pretty big deal. So the twins grow up. And these are supposed to be God's tools. We can't forget that it's through this family that the covenants are supposed to come about. So we would expect one of these boys to grow up and be honorable, right? A good guy. Somebody who carries himself like we would think a prophet or a priest or a king, full of, uh, of ambition and willing to lead and do hard things. But both sons, both Big Red and Sneaky Jacob, are not very good guys. Uh, Genesis chapter 25 actually describes Jacob, I think it's, I wrote it down, it says this about him, that he was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now, you're thinking everybody dwelled in tents, right? Yeah, well, that's true. So why is the Bible emphasizing that? This is supposed to imply that Jacob is more of kind of like an inside kind of guy. Like, he's like, I'll just let you guys do the work, and I'll stay in here in the shade, and we'll just make sure, you know, everything inside the tent stays where it's supposed to stay. I don't know. I can keep myself busy. The reason I think he was allowed to get away with that in a hunter-gatherer society is because his mother, Rebecca, liked him the most. So you're starting to see some division develop in this family. You have Isaac who loves the strong, ruddy, aggressive, successful older brother. And we have Rebecca, who tends to favor the mama's boy, who's a little more sneaky and likes to fly under the radar and is probably pretty comfortable with not getting that much work done if he can get away with it. So this goes about the way that you think it's going to. If you feel like this is foreshadowing, it absolutely is. In Genesis 27, Isaac is old enough that he loses his sight. And having lost his sight, he can tell that this is probably the first step physically into the grave for him. He becomes worried. If he doesn't pass his blessing off, then his family will erupt into chaos because he knows the brothers don't get along. He can tell. So he decides he's going to go ahead and give the blessing, the birthright, and the land before he's dead to make sure that everything goes the way it's supposed to. So here's his plan. He calls in Esau, Big Red, the big brother, the one everybody liked, and he says, I want you to go out on a hunting expedition, and I want you to find a trophy animal. You hunt the biggest thing you can. Bring it back here. We'll cut it up. We'll cook it fresh, and then we'll serve that food. And at this feast, the kind of last ceremonial thing is that you'll come before me, I'll lay my hands on you, and I will pass along the blessing to you. Now, why does the blessing matter? Well, these people are religious, so that's a part of it. But in the Old Testament world, if there were more than one brother in play, as far as inheritance goes, the older brother got double the inheritance of everybody else. So in the case of Esau and Jacob, Esau would have gotten two-thirds of all of his father's possessions, servants, the property, the animals, and the responsibility as well, but he would have gotten two-thirds, and then Jacob would have been stuck with one-third. Now, what do you think Rebecca, the boy's mom, and sneaky Jacob think of this deal? They don't like it, do they? This feels like something almost out of a soap opera. So, so Isaac sends Esau away. Blind Isaac, can't protect himself, can't defend himself, sends Esau away to go on this hunting trip. And this is not just like a hop in the Jeep, drive out, grab a whitetail, come back that evening. Okay, He's gone probably for more than a week here. In that time, Rebecca gets together with Jacob and they make a plan. And they decide that they're going to lie to Isaac and they're going to fool him into thinking that Jacob is Esau, that little sneaky brother is big strong brother. And then they'll have a feast, Isaac's blind, he won't know, and maybe Jacob can get away with receiving the blessing. Because once that blessing's given, it's legally binding. 
It's not just something that happens within that family. There's paperwork and stamps that happen, and and the people around this tribe now begin to recognize whichever son received the blessing as the new patriarch. It's a really big deal. So blind Isaac has learned to recognize his son Esau, not by his red skin, but by how hairy he is, which is gross to me, but it's true. And not only the way that he feels to the touch, but the smell of the man. Well, what do you think that's from? Well, he's really hairy. What do hairy people do in the sun? They sweat. That's right. This is pre-deodorant, if you didn't know that. So big, hairy, stinky Esau comes in to give his father a hug, and his father goes, that's my boy. So they decide that if they can get Jacob to smell like and feel like Esau does, they can trick Isaac. So they do. They go and get goat skins, and they wrap the arms and hands of Jacob in goat skins. And he goes into his father where he's sitting in this tent because he's blind. They're not going to let him walk around the camp. He sits in one place. And Jacob says to his father, Father, it's me, Esau. Now, in your Bible, very interesting, Isaac can tell. He can hear that it's not Esau. He thinks to himself, that's Jacob's voice. But then what does he do? He reaches his hands out, and he feels the goat skin. And our boy Esau must have been hairy, okay? Because he touches the goat skin, and he's like, that's Esau. That's my boy. So he lays his hands on Jacob, who he thinks is Esau, and he passes the blessing on to him. They have a big feast they, cook and kill, they kill and cook an animal. Uh, they feed it to everybody. Everybody kind of sort of celebrates because don't we all know that this is not how this is supposed to go? And then in this sort of like days of our lives, general hospital twist, as Jacob is walking out of the tent, the blessings barely come out of his father's mouth, here comes Esau back with the kill. He's probably got something strung across his shoulders. And he sees his brother and he's like, what are you, okay, weird. So he goes in, he sees Isaac and he says, father, it's me, I'm back for my blessing. And Isaac says, I gave you your blessing already. Esau's like, no, you didn't. I've been hunting like you told me to. The Bible says that Esau is so angry at Jacob that he spends his time fantasizing about the way that he will murder his brother. He becomes obsessed. He becomes borderline insane because of what this does to his mind and his heart. Now, Rebecca finds out. She can tell. Seething, foaming at the mouth Esau, a big man, a man who's good at killing things with weapons, comes out of his father's tent ready to go. Rebecca goes and gets Jacob, and he says, look, the only way Esau can get the birthright back is if he becomes the only son, if you know what I'm saying. There's one way to do that, where he'll just go ahead and get all the inheritance because there won't be a Jacob anymore. So you need to go. You need to run. In the dead of night, Jacob does. He leaves and he goes to live with his uncle. And when he gets to his uncle's house, this is sort of a fun twist here, even though he himself is a cheat, he's been known by that, his life has been defined by it, he gets cheated a little bit. His uncle has two daughters, at least two daughters, and Jacob, sneaky Jacob, decides he wants to marry one of them. And so he makes a deal with his uncle. He says, can I work for you for seven years? And then in return for that work, because Jacob doesn't have any money yet, his father's still alive, so the inheritance is just sort of like a bill of goods. It's not the goods themselves. He says, at the end of that seven years, if I work enough, will you give me the daughter? Well, he wants the younger daughter, not the older daughter. That's going to be important, because at the end of the seven years, they have a wedding. I guess it was in the dark, because Jacob ends up marrying the wrong sister. The uncle thinks it's the right sister. He says, no, we always marry off the oldest sister first. And Jacob's like, (laughs) seven years. I worked for seven years, and now I'm married to the wrong person for seven years. Seven years. And the uncle's like, I don't know, man, that's a bummer. Weird. Wish that wouldn't have happened to you. So then Jacob says, well, what about the other sister? Can I marry her too? Not a good idea, Jacob. Not a good plan, but... He's there by himself. His mama isn't there to control things. So the uncle's like, yeah, you could do that again. You could work seven more years. So he does. He spends 14 years trying to marry this girl that he wants to marry. Okay? He gets married to both of these women who are sisters to each other. Do you think this goes well? 
Have you seen the TV show Sister Wives? This is the idea, okay? These women are immediately rivals. There's a whole chapter of Genesis in which they are trying to out-pregnancy each other. Their rivalry is insane. They attack one another. Their children don't get along. They bribe each other with different things to decide who gets to lay with the husband and have the next baby. It's really, really bad. It's really ugly the whole time. And their hearts never really heal. Like for the duration of this relationship, they're rivals. Their sons grow up and there's rivalry, which will come into play a couple, the next generation and the generation after that. But Jacob finally has an encounter with God. This is the good news. About the midpoint in his life, there's a moment where God intercedes. And God says to him, I am going to acknowledge the blessing that your father Isaac gave you, and I'm going to pass my covenant promises on to you. You are now the active generation that carries the weight of this covenant. Why does God do that? Is it because Jacob is a good guy? No. No, it's not. Jacob should have been murdered, incarcerated. He should have been kicked out of the country he was a part of, forced out of his family. And instead, God comes to him and says, you're the one I'm going to use. Why would God do that? Is it because Jacob at the last minute repented? Oh, man, I'm sorry, God, for everything that I did, and you're right, and I shouldn't have done it. No, he continues to be dishonest for a really long time after this. The reason God is doing this is because Jacob is very, very weak. It's because Jacob doesn't have anything to offer God. It's because when we see Jacob's life, we see a person for whom can take no credit for the good in his life, for the blessings around him. That's what God is doing. That's the way he works through his covenants. It's human weakness that is his tool. In the same way that he chose a barren man and his wife, Abraham, from whom to birth a whole nation, he now chooses a criminal, a liar, and a thief to bring about his covenant promises that will heal all of the problems that are rampant in Jacob's life himself. We fast forward a little bit, and we get to the point where Jacob is now um, an older man, okay? His, both of his wives have finished having kids. He ends up having 12 sons total. We read their names a minute ago in the book of Exodus. And Jacob decides that he's going to go back home, and he's going to have to meet his brother Esau. It's been, probably been 20 years at this point. So he heads back. The way he does it is really dirty. He actually puts his wives and all of his kids, he like separates them based on which wife he likes better, and he puts the wife he doesn't like that much in the front with her kids so that like if people are going to shoot arrows, they'll be the ones to get killed first. Not a good guy, church. The Bible tells the story. Not a hero, okay? He, he, and he stays back so he doesn't get hurt. Well, he meets Esau, and in another big plot twist, Esau forgives him, which is pretty cool. I guess it took him 20 years to calm down, but he's finally able to receive his brother back and forgive him. So Jacob settles, finally, once and for all. He plants his feet. He's back from his father-in-law's place. He's got both of these wives. He's got 12, probably more than 12 kids, but he's got 12 sons at least. And he settles in the land, and then God comes to him a second time. And he says, I'm going to change your name. Now, this is a really big moment. I would argue that this is the moment when Jacob is converted, when he goes from being a person whose life is built on his own works to trusting that God will follow through on his promises. Jacob's name means he cheats, or heel grabber because of the way he came out of the womb. He's lived up to this reputation for his whole life. God says, from now on, I'm going to call you Israel, which means God strives. God is working. God is strong enough. God is moving. God is the one in play here. Why would God name that man that? Probably because he needs a reminder that that's true. Probably because if, he's gonna, if God's going to build a nation out of this guy, the foundation of that nation is going to be that God is striving, that God is still working, that God has not given up on these covenant promises. Human weakness 
is the tool with which God works out his covenants. And that will stay true through the whole book of Exodus. We're going to continue to see human beings make really bad decisions, misunderstanding God's covenant, believing in their heart as we often do, that God is far from us, that he's not listening, that he isn't paying attention, that he doesn't care, that he's forgotten about us. But baked into the identity of this people is the idea that God is at work. He's still going. He's not done. And he will get us where he wants us to be. Genesis wraps up with the longest narrative biography in the Bible. There are more chapters given over to the story of the man Joseph than there are anybody else in the Bible, aside from Jesus. But it's the longest unbroken biographical narrative. Begins in chapter 37 and ends at the end of chapter 50 of Genesis. Joseph is the second to last. He's the 11th son of this man who's now called Israel. I'll use the name Israel for the rest of this morning. Joseph is Israel's favorite son because Joseph is the son born to him uh, when he's very, very old, and he's one of the only sons from the wife that he liked, which is just a bummer for the other sons. So already the sons are set against each other. Wouldn't you think a guy like Israel, who had all this strife with his brother, brother Esau, would learn a lesson or two from that about how to parent his own sons? It doesn't happen. They have six times as much trouble because there's six times as many kids. So the 11 other sons decide that they're sick of Joseph being a spoiled brat, and so they sell him into slavery. And they sell him to a caravan of slave drivers that are kind of passing through the land that are probably picking up criminals and people with deformities and people who are sick and people who have wronged their families. And they're just putting together these kind of caravans, for lack of a better word, of just human beings, human cattle that are going to go and be sold in big cities. And so they travel through the land of Canaan where God's people are living at this time. They pick up the young man, Joseph, and they take him to Egypt. And in Egypt, he's purchased and placed in the house of a lieutenant, a guy who's really important in the city of Egypt, in the nation of Egypt, in, in, probably in Cairo. And this is where Joseph grows up. He lives as a slave for a while. Then he's accused of adultery and rape, which he did not commit. He kept his hands clean. He's thrown into prison because the woman who accused him is a big enough deal in that culture that everybody takes her seriously. It doesn't matter what he says. And also because she did some things she shouldn't have done. And by accusing him, she's able to keep herself safe. You ever heard that story before? People are all the same, okay? So he sits in prison. He thinks he's going to die. He's praying to God. God gives Joseph a gift. Why? Why would God give a man who's sitting in prison, who's been sold into slavery, whose family believes that he's dead, why would God give him a gift? Because God uses weak people, human weakness. Joseph's low position is the very thing that qualifies him for God to even be interested in working in his life. He has nowhere else to turn. He has nothing else to fall back on. And so he uses that gift, the ability to understand God communicating through dreams, to find himself catapulted from the prison of the Pharaoh to second in command. I mean, he becomes the chief financial officer of the empire of Egypt, almost overnight. The man's hair is overgrown, he's disgusting, he smells probably worse than Esau ever did, living in this prison. And the next moment, he's marched up into the king's room, he communicates what God tells him to say, the king says, great, you work for me now, and you're in charge of pretty much everything that matters because I don't want to worry about it. And so Joseph becomes kind of Egyptianized. Now, the biggest plot twist in this story, we haven't even arrived at yet, it's that a famine hits the land of Canaan where Joseph's family's living, Israel, the other 11 sons, their wives and children. And so God communicates that it's time for those people to go to Egypt that has a big storehouse of grain, which is one of the things that Joseph was able to put into practice before the famine arrived because of the gift that God gave him to be able to see somewhat the future and act on it. Joseph's brothers end up standing in front of him, face to face. And they're probably way down low, and he's way higher than I am on this stage, probably sitting on a throne, surrounded by attendants, and he recognizes them immediately. 
What do you think he does? He sends everybody out and cuts their heads off, right? That's what a lot of us would do. Let's be honest about it, right? You sell me into slavery. You tell our father, I was his favorite son. He thinks I died decades ago. And now you're going to show your face here. You're going to come begging to me. I'll tell you what you can do with that. But what does Joseph do? He says, you did these things for evil, but God has had a plan. What you did on purpose to wrong me, to work against me, God is actively using and redeeming. Even your human weakness, my brothers, is a tool for God to work out his covenant promise. Because what do God's people need to do if they're going to survive this famine? They need to move to a place that has food. And if they go to Egypt, all that's going to happen to them as Hebrew people is they're going to get enslaved right away unless there's somebody in the royal household who could stick up for them. Who better than their own brother Joseph? who instead of destroying them, advocates for them, and then they move into the land of Egypt, and this is where we find them at the beginning of the book of Exodus. This is how we get from Abraham, the Chaldean nomad, to Joseph, CFO of Egypt. This is the path we walk. It's through this family tree. And in the same way that God passed his blessing down to Isaac and then to Israel, he continues to pass his blessing down through the the children of Israel into these tribes that begin to grow. Your Bible told you 70 people total move into Egypt once Joseph invites them in. By the time they leave, a third of the way through Exodus, I think there's like between four and 600,000 men alone, which tells us there's probably about a million and a half people. In the space of 400 years, they just explode. And God makes the nation that he promised to Abraham. He keeps his covenant, the first half, but he has to move them into the nation of Canaan in order to keep the second half. So church, I don't know what's going on in your head right now. Maybe you're feeling whiplash. Maybe this is way too much for you to process at a given time. Maybe you're bored. Maybe you're confused. (laughs) I hope that what you're asking yourself is why God did this this way. I hope that you're asking yourself why God never gave up on these people. I mean, this is the kind of stuff we would expect from the Sopranos, right? Or the Corleone crime empire. But not God's people, the family God's going to use to bring the Messiah into the earth. These people, by any moral standard, these are not good people. Most of them would never fit in in our communities. They, like I said earlier, they'd be in prison probably if they committed the crimes they committed in the Bible in our nation. They're not particularly honest. They're not particularly faithful. They're not kind. They're not selfless. They're not God-honoring in the way that they live. And these are not supposed to be moral examples to you and I of good Christianity. So if you're confused a little bit, because that's what you thought was that the story of Genesis was a bunch of people that were teaching you virtues, whoever told you that shouldn't have told you that. Because it's not the way God presents this story. This is not the story of a bunch of people that get it right. This is the story of a bunch of people who get it wrong and the God that loves them anyway. Hearing Bible stories taught as moral lessons or examples for our behavior should be offensive to people who understand grace. It's gross. What a low bar, right? What a low bar for the autobiography of the God of the universe that you and I take away a lesson about how we can tell the truth a little bit more than we used to. The purpose of this narrative is to show you that the same God who has promised to sustain you has been keeping those promises for at least six to 8,000 years. So he won't stop now, and he's not going to give up on you. And probably the issues you're facing are not quite as big of a deal as being systemically enslaved in another country. Maybe they are. Maybe they feel like they are to you. But even if they reach that point, God has already proved himself faithful. 
to redeem murderers, to redeem adulterers, people with broken marriages, people who are dishonest, people who steal land and property and money and a birthright from each other. These are people that God can still use, not because of what he can make of them, but because he's bigger than that. He's so much bigger than that. Every one of these stories is supposed to tell you and I how far God's love and mercy can reach. And what you may have done is you may have convinced yourself that God can't reach you. That's the danger of embracing moralism, is it leads to one of two places. You either think you're getting it right, and you become so prideful that nobody can be around you and you reject God, or you convince yourself, which is kind of the inevitable conclusion of the other extreme as well, you convince yourself that you're too dirty and you'll never get it right, and so what's the point? The point is not how clean you can make yourself. The point is not how right you can get it. The point is that God will redeem you. He will save your life forever and he will fix whatever is wrong with you. And he might find a way to use your weakness to advance his covenant on the earth. It's what he's always done. It's what he's good at. So what Genesis is telling you and I is that God does not stop. He does not give up. He doesn't walk away. You cannot scare him away. You cannot drive him away. And more importantly, you cannot be so broken, so screwed up, or so damaged that he doesn't want you. God chose to take his covenant grace, his forgiveness, and to mix it into this world with cracked and broken measuring cups, with dull knives, with rusty whisks, and and other tools that don't seem to work that well. But the value and the power of the ingredients of grace is enough that they they can be beautiful even when they're carried in vessels like you and I that are broken, cracked, shattered, and seemingly worthless. God's mission is reconciliation. His method is to work slowly and methodically with broken tools like you and I. And that is the story of Exodus, and it's your story too. So I hope you'll ask yourself, I hope you'll ask God, what will God do? What could God do as we walk alongside his people in the Exodus looking for glimpses of this master plan? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the chance to be in your word today. I pray now, God, as we turn our attention to the sacrifice of Jesus, as we commune together this morning, that you would take advantage of this next song that we're going to sing together, of this time for us to repent, to ask for forgiveness, not because we fear that we are not forgiven, but because we care about the relationship that we have with you. I pray, God, that through the dust of thousands of years that that sits heavy on these narratives, that you would let us see glimpses of Jesus, of mercy and grace, of your ability to use anybody, anywhere, for whatever your purposes are. And I pray that that would be what screams into our lives through these stories, that we are not too far, that we are not too broken, that we are not too dirty, that your grace is enough. So, God, we want to reflect on that. We want to spend time thinking through how you've gotten us here today, what it means for us to be joined together as we take these elements We pray in Jesus' name.